Well, I, uh, I have slides this morning because I, I plan on inundating you with all kinds of um, theolo theological facts, and, and so I don't have a text this morning, so why don't you stand up if you can. If you are not able to do that, please remain seated. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be with the family. All right. Well, Lord Jesus, we, we love you. And it's because you've loved us and you've saved us, you've redeemed us. And Lord, in the context of the church, you've called us to, to be like you, to love the way that you love. And, and that's very fitting for the things that we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. Our heart's desire is to, to fulfill the law of Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 6, in, in this specific context, Lord, in the ministry of restoration. And so I pray that you would help us to understand the necessity of it and that we would be equipped to do this. So thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> This front row needs to just stop it. So we're talking about this whole issue this morning. Give a, a live example right here in front of everybody. So, yeah, so we were previously examining Galatians chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 3, where Paul introduces what we've decided, I guess, to call the ministry of restoration. You could call it the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, a thing which Paul says fulfills the law of Christ. And as we've looked at all of this, um, it sort of reminds us of, you know, the, the parable that Jesus gave about the, the, the one sheep uh, that wanders away. All we like sheep have gone astray. Amen. And a, a good shepherd will leave the 99 in the wilderness to go recover this one sheep that has strayed. And uh, for whatever reason, um, and it's recovering them is what this is all about. And, you know, in hindsight, we realize that all of the letter of Galatians, uh, up to this point where we are in chapter 6, has been, for Paul, the ministry of restoration. You know, Galatians 6.1 reads this way. He says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you are spiritual Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And so, you know, many within the Galatian church were overtaken by the sin of legalism. And so Paul, the spiritual person, has written this letter to restore them to a proper understanding of the gospel and a proper way to live as New Covenant believers. And then it's in this letter that Paul provides an example of how this ministry of restoration should or how it ought to be practiced in this particular context. So by Paul's example, in keeping with Galatians 6.1, we see, you know, who, who it is that should initiate the confrontation. Paul says it's the spiritual person. At least when a, a, a complex issue of, of doctrine um, is in view. 
And then, you know, what the occasion for the confrontation is. Here, it's, as we've said, it's doctrinal failure, which led to bad practice. And then it's the manner in which it should be addressed. He says, in gentleness, in, in humility. Now, that never changes, regardless of the context. Paul even addresses that uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.24. We'll visit that another day. He says what the goal should be. It's always, it's always the restoration of the believer through repentance, if it's a believer that has strayed. But also, because of the context of Galatians, we have outsiders who have come in as wolves. And so here it's, it's also about protecting the flock, protecting other believers. We'll get to that on another day. Um, he also talks about the person that initiates this ministry, they should be on guard for themselves, keeping an eye on themselves. He says, lest they be tempted. And what happens is in a confrontation, uh, the, the person with goodwill uh, gets arrogant, not intentionally, but it happens. And they fall into sin. Or the other person is so convincing that they fall into their same sin. So in this whole ministry, there are safeguards that we need to have. And then he talks about the ultimate purpose for confronting them. He says this is to fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul's example demonstrates his conviction to, above all else, preserve the truth of the gospel that always has to be foremost, even above people's feelings, you understand, uh, the gospel. And then to restore his brothers and sisters who failed in regard to the truth of the gospel, or he might say, New Covenant doctrine, okay? This is essential to fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love our neighbor as ourself. So in this whole thing that we're talking about, <clears throat> the law of Christ is fulfilled as we attempt to restore a sinning brother or sister to a place of repentance in order to reconcile them to Christ and to the fellowship of of the church, or the, we might say to God's people. And I think that'll serve as a good definition uh, for this whole thing. It is our attempt. You've noticed that you can't coerce people. A holy headlock will never do. Uh, we can do that to our children, uh, but not to... Well, I've never done it to you guys. I have done it to your children. Uh, especially the Corwin children. But anyway, it's an attempt, a, a loving attempt, a humble attempt to restore a sinning brother or sister to a place of repentance that we might reconcile them to Christ and to the fellowship of his people. Now, Galatians chapter 6 is not the only place where this sort of ministry is mentioned. There are many passages in the New Testament that address and expand on the issue, both in teaching and in practice. That is, there are actual examples of it in the text of Scripture. It's in the Gospels. It's in the book of Acts. We've, we've already discussed one in the book of Galatians chapter 2. Uh, there's another one in 1 Corinthians 5. And then there's all kinds of instructions about it uh, in the pastoral epistles and elsewhere that we'll look at. And all of this is, uh, according to the instruction of the Bible, it's for the benefit of God's people. 
And, uh, and we are to learn this, we're to examine these passages so that we might be better equipped to recover those that have wandered off for whatever reason. <clears throat> but before we look at all of those passages, um, address what we're calling the ministry of restoration, we need to first establish a, I guess what we could call a biblical standard to go by in order to determine whether or not someone should be confronted and corrected. Okay, otherwise, we might go after people, or rather get after people, for simply differing with us over non-essential uh, matters, matters of opinion, and that actually happens way too often. And I'm sure some of you have been the victim of uh, uh, being attacked for simply differing with someone, uh, a difference of opinion or preference. And we get into squabbles like children over uh, which uh, kind of ice cream is the best. That is not permitted in this context. So we must answer, I think, this question. <clears throat> for what reasons uh, should we confront someone in order to restore them to repentance and fellowship? For what reasons? Now, of course, the quick answer to this question is sin, but in the scriptures, the ministry of restoration is practiced in the context of at least three categories of sin. Man, we can sin in a lot of ways, can't we? Uh, because those are just headings. <laughs> There's a lot more. So these three categories of sin is, is uh, the places that we can fail is, is getting God wrong. We might, we might call that bad theology. Uh, there's also getting biblical truth wrong. We would call that bad doctrine. And then there's getting ethics wrong. That's bad morality. And there is a host of all of these uh, in the church today. And, uh, and that's troubling. So it's all about our confession of faith, uh, confessions of faith and our conduct. And when these do not conform to the word of God, it's sin. It misses the mark somehow. Our, our confession about God refers to what we believe and teach about him. That is, who he is and what he is. Or if you prefer, his metaphysical and moral attributes. What God is and what he is like is essential to our faith. And then our confession about doctrine refers to what God says in his word and what he says about his word. That's essential. And then our conduct refers to doing what God commands and avoiding what he forbids. We might say all these in another way. We might say when there is failure in essential theology or when there's failure in essential doctrines and when there's failure in essential morality. I say essential again because people have a tendency to squabble and divide the church over non-essentials. And uh, we'll look at a number of those things as we go through the scriptures. There's a lot of nonsense to argue about. And we are really good inventors of those things. And that's why we need to keep our eyes on the scriptures so that we're not led into some ridiculous, immature thing. Amen? All right. Just uh, an example of a few of these uh, before we get started. Uh, when we look at Genesis to Revelation, there's so many examples in all three of these categories. Uh, we find both God and the people of God exercising this ministry. You know, in the very beginning, the first 
sin that entered into the world, we have God confronting Adam and Eve for it. What is this you have done? And then the consequences that follow. Moses confronted the children of Israel, uh, of course, on a number of occasions in the, the wilderness wandering in Exodus through Numbers. Nathan, a classic story, confronting David when he failed morally in many regards. The prophets were constantly confronting Israel when they failed morally. The prophets of God were uh, constantly confronting the theological errors of Israel's leadership. You remember Moses confronting Aaron for heresy. He, he fashioned the golden calf and he said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. That was deserving of some confrontation. God says, I'm not a cow. Okay? Correction. Jesus confronted the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees on multiple occasions. Peter confronted the lies of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, I don't want to repeat any of the consequences of that. The apostles confronted false teaching in Acts 15. They, they all got together for this one because it, it had something to do with the gospel directly. Paul confronted the Corinthians for immorality especially in 1 Corinthians 5 through 6. Paul confronted the Galatians and the Hebrews for false doctrine, which led to false practices. Paul confronted Peter for hypocrisy and for not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Galatians 2 and John confronted seven of the churches of Asia, well, six of them for bad doctrine and some for more reasons. Roman Revelation 2 through 3. So sins related to theology, doctrine, and morality call for godly confrontation. As we examine the scriptures more closely in history in general, we find that bad theology and doctrine always lead to bad morality. And bad morality has a tendency to justify bad theology and doctrine. Interesting. But whenever we detect this in the fellowship of the church, we are obligated to address it. Obligated. When we fail to believe properly and obey appropriately, it's called sin. And God has called us to the ministry of restoration that we might restore people to a biblical confession and a godly conduct. And some people, I think, would say, well, what is the big deal about all of this? Well, first, it is our confession, and it is our conduct, which then is related to our witness, that makes us uniquely Christian. It's foundational to all that God has called us to be. So it's all essential. These are the important things. Okay. So let's, let's look closer at these three categories of sin, and then in the weeks that follow, we'll expound on uh, the various passages, both that provide teaching in this regard and some of the examples of the apostles for reconciliation. So, um, <clears throat> theology. Who loves theology? Essential truths about God. Uh, most people don't like theology. Um, but we dare not devalue the importance of theology because theology tells us who God is. 
And there are grave consequences for getting God wrong. An example, as we've said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. He's a cow. There's a theological error there. And to make that error brings on serious consequences. So these are what we're going to talk about right now, are essential things about God that we must believe, that we must confess, and, and we must protect. So the first one there, God is a trinity. We're, we're a Trinitarian church, by the way, if you didn't notice. We believe in the trinity, that there is but one divine essence or nature consisting of three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Understand, this is the Creator God, and there is no other. Any other view of God is not just an error, it is idolatrous. One theologian that I respect very highly says that if you do not believe in the Trinity, you are an atheist. Because there is no other God but the Trinitarian God. You can believe in a false God that is a demon, but that's not a God. So if you don't believe in the one true God, you are essentially an atheist. It's a very interesting way to state all of that. Yeah. And all these persons of the Trinity, they're co-equal in every regard. They're equal. God is eternal and infinite in all of his attributes. We say both metaphysically and morally, and therefore God is omnipresent. I have on the screen there, omni means all. Omni means all. So he's omnipresent. Each person in the Trinity is everywhere present at all times. Aren't you glad? It means that he can rescue you anywhere at any time on planet Earth. It's a good quality to have in a God. Okay. God is omniscient. He possesses all knowledge, including all future knowledge. And he just, doesn't just have all future knowledge. We insert into this God's sovereignty that he's directing the future. He's bringing everything to his revealed and orchestrated end. God is omnipotent. Each person possesses all power. God is omnibenevolent. Not a real common term, but it just means that the Trinity is all loving. And then omnisapient, that God possesses all wisdom. God doesn't just know, know everything. He knows the best way to do everything difference between knowledge and wisdom. Also, the Trinity is completely righteous by nature, always exercising justice and truth. And so God then is holy. He's holy. Now, metaphysically, he is holy, meaning that he's separate. He's other. He's, he transcends his creation. He must be distinct from his creation. Otherwise, we get into something called pantheism which is the, the false teachings of the East. He's different than his creation. He is, he is eternal. His creation is not. His creation is material. He is not. But he's also morally holy. He cannot sin, and, and he's not contaminated by sin. I, I'm not, there's, not everything is up on the screen, by the way. And, and this can be a very broad discussion. We don't have time for all of that this morning. But there are some essential things. Also, God is pure spirit. Jesus said to the woman at the well, God is spirit. A lot of people say, no, God is a man or God is a woman. 
or God is a cow, or God is some animal, or God is the sun, or, or whatever. No, God is pure spirit. He does not have a body. Uh, he doesn't have parts. He's not a man, thankfully. He's pure spirit. And scriptures say, logically concluding, that he is invisible. Now, there is the great mystery of the Trinity. That's the incarnation. Do we believe in the incarnation? <laughs> we better. Only one person, this is what's so mysterious about the Trinity. We talk about the great miracles of the Bible. This is the great miracle. Creation uh, doesn't hold a candle to the incarnation. That one person in the Trinity, who is Christ, took on flesh in Mary's virgin womb. He was born into the world, lived a sinless life, died a substitutional death for sinners to atone for our sins, rose in bodily form from the dead, ascended to heaven where he waits to return. And so Jesus, who is the Son of God, still dwells in his physical body, but he's had some serious metaphysical upgrades all of which we get to look forward to, all right? So if, you, if you're experiencing pain and, and all kinds of um, limitations in this body, uh, many of those are removed uh, at our resurrection. I think, I think that's enough for you to get the point. Um, and the real point of all of this is we must affirm what God has revealed about himself, and we must reject whatever contradicts it. God has given us his self-revelation in his word, and it's true. And any other belief to the contrary is to distort the person of God. Okay? <clears throat> if we change anything, we basically end up believing in a false God and Entertaining any false concept of God then leads to idolatry. Idolatry. So to believe and make claims of God, about God, that are false, it is sin. In fact, idolatry is, I believe, is probably the greatest sin of all. Uh, one Bible teacher has commented on the dangers of idolatry this way. Please listen. He says, among the sins to which the human heart is prone... Hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. Always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it and will be base or pure, cruel or kind, according to the moral state of the mind from which it emerges." A God begotten in the shadows of a fallen heart will quite naturally be no true likeness of the true God. You thought, said the Lord to the wicked man in the psalm, that I was altogether like you. Surely this must be a serious affront to the Most High God, before whom cherubim and seraphim continually do cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He continues, a right, concept, a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. 
I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. That's a fact. The life of every individual and of every church will follow its idea of God. Everybody. If we get God wrong or we tolerate wrong ideas about him, we will lose our footing on the gospel and morality itself. We will plummet into the abyss that all Western society is plummeting right now. We must keep a firm grip on who God is and what he is like. We must confess it. We must declare it. God has revealed it. Nothing is more important than our concept of him. And when we do detect any error concerning the person of God, it has to be addressed. We must address it. We must correct it. And as Paul says, we must do it gently and humbly. Okay? The second thing that we're called to address <clears throat> is the issue of doctrine. Now, I, I, I'm using these these traditional terms that I, I think are seemingly becoming bigger terms for us today. Uh, but what I've found is, is they're being recirculated back into commentary. And I know that you guys are, because of all that's going on in culture, you're on the web and uh, you're reading articles, you're listening to YouTube. And uh, I've found that these terms are being used again. And uh, they might be being used, and you're thinking, I don't know what those terms are. So we're going to use them and define them. And, uh, and eventually, as we use them more often, we'll save time. How's that? So in front of you, you have the inspiration of the word. Uh, that is its source. The inerrancy of the word. That's the result. We might say the product. We have the infallibility of the word, referring to its authority. And then we want to talk about the gospel. That's how God saves and sanctifies. Now, these doctrines uh, concerning God's word are foundational to all that we affirm and believe. This is the thing that, that holds us on to God, if you will. You know, Jesus prayed, you know, Father, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. But God's word is truth. He is the inspirer of the word. So inspiration, when we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the Bible's ultimate source, its ultimate source. Paul said that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, when he uses the word inspiration, he doesn't mean like, you know, one of our teenagers who is inspired by a great actor, athlete, poet, musician, and then they're inspired to kind of follow in their footsteps and do great things. Paul, Paul's not thinking about that at all when he says this. In the original language, that Paul was writing in the Greek language, he said all scripture is theopanousto, which means breathed out by God. It's God-breathed. It's the very breath of God. It was breathed out by him to man who then recorded it in the words of, of the Bible. Peter said that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 1.21. To be moved by the Holy Spirit in this way meant to be carried along by the Holy Spirit who ensured that the words recorded by man were the very words of God. God is the ultimate source. 
David said, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. 2 Samuel 23, 2. And the Holy Spirit's words spoken by David are primarily found in the book of Psalms. Many of them. So you guys, we cannot surrender any ground when it comes to the Bible's inspiration. All scripture is God's word. Every word in the Bible all of its grammar, every, everything it affirms, all that it denies, all that it implies was breathed out by God. He is its source. He is its source. And that leads to the doctrine of inerrancy. The Bible is inerrant. The, the doctrine refers to its product, the result of inspiration. It means that, that the scriptures are without any error, any error in their original autographs. When the various holy men of God originally penned the scriptures, being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they penned no errors. Zero. None. The documents were flawless. So, of course, you know, people say, what about today? The scriptures have been, they've been copied over and over for thousands of years. Can they still be trusted? The answer to that question is a resounding yes. When I engage with people over the, the historical reliability of the scriptures, I encounter a grave ignorance about the manuscript evidence. And people are hearing stuff and then regurgitating it on me. It's more like they're throwing up on me, you know, this insanity. The doubts about the trustworthiness of the scriptures, as we have them today, has been resolved. Because of the vast data of manuscript evidence, there is no longer reasonable doubt. All doubt regarding the historical reliability and accuracy of the Bible is unreasonable. It's unreasonable. Only a skeptic with a chip on his shoulder casts doubt on the reliability of the text. And not because there are flaws in the text, but because he simply rejects the scriptures as a supernatural book, and those are not viable grounds to make your case. They're not. Okay. And so the doctrine of inerrancy leads to infallibility. Now, some people use this word uh, uh, synonymous with inerrancy, but uh, it has roots in something else, and that is the biblical authority. And sadly, those who have worked the hardest to erode the Bible's authority are those who call themselves Christians. Christian seminaries are the worst. They're the worst. My goodness. All, every major heresy that has ever permeated the church has come from seminaries. I'm disgusted with them. Yeah. They've educated themselves into idiocy professing themselves to be wise, they've become fools. This doctrine, like in, in inerrancy, flows from the inspiration of the Bible. Because God, who cannot err, is the ultimate source of Scripture, the Bible cannot err. It just follows logically and affirms what the Bible teaches. We might put him, uh, this in a syllogism that goes like this. God cannot err. The Bible is God's word, therefore the Bible cannot error. It, it's as simple as that. 
If the Bible is God's word and God cannot err, the Bible can make no errors. It's flawless. And because God possesses all authority, guess what? His word possesses all authority. There's another syllogism. God possesses all authority. The Bible is God's word, therefore the Bible has all, say it, authority. All authority. And it has authority, all authority, on every subject it addresses. It is final. Yeah. You guys, you have to understand that the battle will always be fought over these three doctrines right here. Always. If you can, especially the first one, if you can mess with that one, the rest of all of biblical theology and doctrine crumbles to the ground. That is the important one. Okay? All of the others follow. We have to uphold this. Something that we have to consider, I think, is that if we can question the authority of Scripture, its infallibility, inspiration, then who will be the authority? <laughs> Government, God forbid. <laughs> we will. We become the arbitrator of truth. We decide what is right. We decide what is wrong for us, for our family, for the church, and for society. We replace God's authority with our own, which is called humanism. Humanism. And most churches today are more humanistic than they are Christian. Listen to this citation from the Humanist Manifesto 2. There's three of them. Under the subheading of ethics, of which they have no ground for ethics. But they say, we affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. They are the authority. Everything that we are, the morals we hold, are self-determined, and God is completely excluded. That's humanism. When we doubt the scriptures, we do this by default. We become the authority. How well is that working for humanity? It's terrible. For every ounce of biblical authority that is questioned, it is replaced with a pound of rebellion. We have to fight against it. And then also, following these essential doctrines is the gospel itself. We've already talked about who God is. Now we're talking about how God saves. And by the way, that's where every cult goes wrong. They, they misdefine God, and they misdefine how God saves people. You don't have to go into all of the details of their theology and doctrine. You just have to look at what they say about God and how they say God saves. And that's how you determine a cult. Okay. The gospel is the means by which God has chosen to save humanity from the penalty of sin and to save humanity from the power of sin. And ultimately, he'll save us from the presence of sin. Amen? Now, the gospel is often confined to the message of Christ's death and resurrection, but that's way too narrow. It's way too narrow. As we look at the gospel in its entirety, we see that it encompasses all of New Covenant faith and practice, what it is that we believe and how it is that we ought to behave. That's the gospel. 
When Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, As much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. They're not just saved by faith. They live by faith. That's all the gospel. And then in, in his letter to the Romans, Paul provides the most comprehensive discussion about the gospel in all of Scripture, including man's lostness and his need for righteousness and God's provision for man's legal righteousness, God's provision for man's practical righteousness, the believer's conduct and community, the believer's response to secular government. Have you noticed we live in a secular world? We need some instruction there. And then the believer's rule of conduct in the church and so forth. That is the gospel. It consists of all, all of the Christian truths we might say in the new covenant. Whatever is taught by Jesus and the apostles, that's the gospel. And nothing of its content can be diminished or dismissed without serious consequences. Okay. I think we find that sobering reality in Revelation 3 and 4, where Jesus is walking in the midst of the seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches of Asia. Six of the churches are rebuked and warned, and all of the warnings are due to some error concerning the gospel. The gospel. Jesus even threatened to remove the lampstand from the church of Ephesus, meaning that he would discard it for its inviability. You're no longer a legitimate church. I must remove you if you do not repent. He threatens to cast the church of Thyatira into great tribulation unless they repented of their immorality. You guys, the church and every individual in it must give some serious thought to see whether or not they've aligned themselves with the truth of the gospel. And where we observe people straying from these truths, we must make an attempt to restore them. You guys, we are not permitted to let them wander off. We must leave the 99 behind to recover the one. Amen? Morality, essential ethics for the people of God. I'm not going to cover all of these. I want to address a few. Um, I think that this, of course, like the others, could lead into a very long discussion. So we'll just look at, I think, what is becoming, what is most essential and things that are coming to the surface that are, are the worst. Of course, the supreme ethic is love. And out of it flows a host of virtues, as we've recently uh, discussed in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and love expresses itself, as Paul said, in joy and peace and long-suffering, kindness, goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you're going to talk about the ministry of restoration, uh, this is the, this, this, these are the virtues that you want to take with you. Otherwise, you will fail to be winsome, and uh, you might as well kick somebody in the teeth and say goodbye to them. Okay. And then 
You know, without love, Paul told the Corinthians, you're essentially worse than nothing. Amen. That's true. We need love. It's the great ethic for God's people. It's obviously an ethic that we grow in as we grow in our likeness to Jesus. But for our context this morning, we're concerned when those among us are hateful and cruel. We can be that way. We're interested in those who walk contrary to love in their conduct and in their relationships. That deserves the ministry of restoration, right? If it is the supreme ethic, when we stray from it, we need some attention from other believers that love us. Uh, One particular issue that plagues humanity uh, is the issue of sexual morality. It is, we are becoming more like Corinth. Uh, Las Vegas is everywhere now. And sexual morality is so prevalent, it just is inescapable. And it's an issue that haunts believers. It has from the beginning. And I think here is part of the issue, an important issue, is that those believers who do not engage in a physical act of sexual morality, as it's defined by God in his word, often lust after someone else, which is as Jesus says, to commit adultery in the heart. And we typically, I think, nowadays, because pornography is so prevalent, that we equate lusting after someone for pornography. Uh, You guys, there was no, we've talked about this before, there was no photography in the first century. Uh, Jesus was talking to a community of people, the covenant community, Israel, uh, where the women were covered from here, to the dirt, and their hair was up and oftentimes covered. So lusting after someone does not require them to be naked. You understand? So Jesus says to lust after someone is to commit adultery in the heart. It's a serious issue in our culture for sure. Any kind of sex that occurs outside of marriage, as God designed it, is dangerous to the soul to the family, and to society. I want you to consider something with me here. Paul says that our bodies were not meant for sexual morality, but our bodies were meant for the Lord. They belong to him. Okay. He says every sin that someone commits is outside the body, but those who commit sexual morality sin against their own body. Or do you not know that Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 19. So our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy of Holies, the very dwelling place of God. And so When a believer engages in sexual morality, they're using God's temple as a brothel. You think that's offensive to God? To use his temple as a whorehouse, which desecrates and defiles his dwelling? You know, earlier in Corinthians, Paul said this, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God... 
God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. <laughs> Seems like fornication is a sin that we shouldn't mess with. Shouldn't tangle with. Paul says, repent and flee from it. And so as the family of faith, it is our duty to try and rescue a fellow believer who is committing sexual sin. Because what does Paul say that God will do to them? It's not what I said. It's what Paul said. He said, God will destroy that person. We want to recover them. And bring them back into fellowship with him and with other believers. I'm running out of time. You guys know to be honest, right? Okay. You know to be just. So let me, let me uh, review with you and then prepare, prepare you for the next couple weeks. Our, our purpose this morning was to look at three categories of sin that call for us to initiate the ministry of restoration. We said theology, essential truths about God, doctrine, essential truths about the Bible and what it teaches, and then ethics, an essential morality as defined by God. And we said that whenever there's failure in these categories, love would compel us to confront and correct And so with that as our standard to initiate the ministry of restoration, now what we want to do is we want to go to the scriptures directly and look at what it teaches about all of these categories. And we'll look at some actual examples of Jesus and Paul and Peter and John engaging with people accordingly uh, for an example for us. And hopefully the end result will be a healthier Calvary Chapel. Amen? A body of believers that is equipped and loving to address all of these things for our own benefit and ultimately for the glory of God. All right? All right, go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Galatians 6 just happens to be a springboard into a broad discussion. I hope that as we go through some of this, some of you will be relieved I'm sure that you have been potentially wronged as people have tried to do this. Uh, They did it in the wrong way. There's a right way. And um, and we should know it. So let's pray. Well, Father, as your word says, Ephesians 4, my job uh, as a pastor is to equip the saints for ministry, of all ministry. And And uh, the ministry of restoration and reconciliation, I think, is one of the most important ones. Because in it, we learn the truths of Scripture. And we learn through love how to hold our brothers and sisters accountable. And to bring them back into sweet fellowship with you and the church. So Lord, I pray that you would grant me wisdom as I address all of these issues. And that you would grant us all grace because the time is going to come when we'll need to address one of our loved ones. And, uh, and we, Lord, we want to do it well. Lord, thank you for my church family. I just pray that you'd lavish your grace upon them. In Jesus' name, amen.